Well, it's good to see you this morning, and we have a special guest who is with us. I'd like to invite up to the platform Hillary. Hillary, come along with us. Hillary Poo. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, welcome, Hillary. Hillary has been here several times. Uh, he is one of the leading evangelical uh, ministers and leaders in Estonia. And uh, I have had the pleasure to uh, be in Estonia a couple of times and to minister with Hillary and his team. And uh, we actually have had really the vision to be able to send people to Estonia. We sent a team last year and another team is going this year. And so it's uh, really an honor to have Hillary with us. And I'm going to ask Hillary if you would just take a few minutes and bring us up to date with what is going on with the Christian movement in uh, the country of Estonia. Thank you, Gary. Well, I bring you greetings from Estonia. I'm, I'm glad to be back here and uh, just some pictures. By the way, this is your group last, well, a couple of summers ago maybe in Tallinn uh, and uh, we prayed together. And this is so important for me to build these bridges between U.S. churches and, and Estonian churches. And we want to reach our people to Jesus because most of our people don't know Jesus yet, but we believe that uh, uh, we can help them. So I am uh, involved in leadership training because I, I strongly believe that if we have a good pastors, we have good leadership, youth uh, leaders, then they can uh, train and, uh, and send out and empower church. To, uh, to do something in, in our world, and you see some pictures uh, about that. Recently, God has brought me also to uh, Finland, and uh, there is uh, uh, Finnish people, of course, but in Finland there are Karen missionaries, uh, uh, Karen people, and we try to uh, teach them as well. But young people are on our heart, and on my heart too, because uh, young people are our future. Not only our future, but already present uh, blessing too. So uh, helping them to find uh, the way to, to better life, life with Jesus, this is such a great, uh, great thing to do. And if you now put up your next picture, there is a big youth conference, about 600 young people together, praising the Lord, looking for a ways what God is doing in their lives. So, uh, of course, I, I want to add one more thing, and it's war in Ukraine. What has brought more than 65,000 refugees into Estonia? And that's a big challenge to us, to our churches. We try to help them. We even planted a Ukrainian-speaking church in Tallinn, which is our capital. Church is growing. And uh, through that church, we, we try to find the people who need most help and most support. So thank you for being my partner. Thank you for uh, being partner for Estonian churches. Uh, let's uh, do things together. And uh, any time you are very welcome to Estonia, by the way. And this Amen. is our capital. Yeah. Thank you, Hillary. God bless you. That's wonderful. It is uh, not only a beautiful country, but filled with beautiful people. And yet, um, Hillary tells me that less than 1% 
of the people in the entire country of Estonia claim Jesus Christ as their Lord. And so there is much work to do. To begin today, I want to tell you how much I love to read. It started when I was a boy. Uh, I read everything I could get my hands on. Now, my family lived in an old farmhouse, and in the bedroom where I resided, there was a deep closet. And at the end of that closet, there were boxes and boxes and boxes of old books. Some of those books were classics. You may remember the names, such as The Last of the Mohicans, or maybe Treasure Island. I was so excited to read that I spent hours just sitting in that closet reading. Some of you would imagine, why in the world wouldn't I come out of that closet and read? I, I don't know. I just like to sit there and, and read. But when I was a kid and I was in school, and let's see if I can date some of you here, uh, I was allowed to purchase a paper that came every Friday. It was called The Weekly Reader. Anybody remember that? Yeah, a few of you. Okay, The Weekly Reader. It contained articles. It contained stories. Those stories captured my imagination. And so, as I said, I just read everything. Now, through my years, my love for reading has dramatically expanded and broadened, at least a little bit beyond the weekly reader. But my repertoire now continues or contains things like commentaries, car magazines. Uh, some of you know I like to read about cars. Travelogues, spy novels, history, and historical novels. Now, some of the books that I read are informational. Others, I just read them for pure enjoyment. I particularly enjoy reading historical fiction, where there's a mix of true history with some uh, fictional characters and or situations. I find that I'm always drawn to the excitement of the story that culminates with the final chapter, right? In that final chapter, everything is wrapped up. There's a strong conclusion. Sometimes you discover who did it. At other times, you, the hero wins over evil, and everything is wrapped up in a nice bow. I have to admit that sometimes I wanted to read ahead and go to that final chapter before I had finished, but I know none of you would ever do that in your reading. So, I need you to open up to the book of Acts. And guess what? We're in chapter 28, the final chapter. So as we've arrived here, maybe you're expected to find a stunning conclusion to the journey of the Apostle Paul. Uh, since chapter 9, we have followed his amazing conversion. We followed his travels, some of his travails, on all three of his missionary journeys. Now, you would expect Luke, the writer of Acts, to include not only his imprisonment in Rome, but also his final days as a proclaimer of the gospel message of Jesus. Even though Paul's been the central figure in delivering the gospel, Luke never wants us to forget that the story, the story of Acts, is really about the redeeming work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It tells us about his resurrection from the dead to bring what? Salvation to the Jews and 
to the Gentiles. So we really shouldn't be disappointed with this ending. We have to allow history to fill in the details of Paul's life while we draw our attention to the message that he wrote. So I need you to open up your Bibles. I hope you're there, or your handphones. You know, I know some of you use the electronic version. That's okay. They're holy handphones, you know, when you open it up to the Bible. And there are three uh, main sections to this concluding chapter, at least when we begin from verse 7. First of all, we see Paul on the island of Malta, and there we see a great kindness. Then we see Paul journeying to Rome in verses 11 to 15. And then finally, we see Paul's message to the people while he is in Rome. So let's begin with what I have called the kindness on Malta. Now, we find out that one of the hallmarks of the people of Malta is their extraordinary kindness towards Paul, his uh, Roman guard, Julius, and all the others aboard that shipwrecked vessel. I want to remind you that there were 276 people on that ship that landed on Malta. So in chapter 28, uh, verse 2, let's just take a look at that real closely. It says, And the natives showed an extraordinary kindness, for because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. Now, these natives on Malta, they were non-Greek-speaking people. But we notice right away, they were kind people. And they even lit a fire for these castaways, all 276 of them. Luke notes that from this kindness, it continued, as we see in verse 7, for three days. But beyond that, let's jump ahead to verse 11, we see that it also happened for 11 months, or I'm sorry, three months, verse 11. And at the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship which had wintered at the island. So kindness was a hallmark of these people of Malta. Now, I wanted to learn a little bit more about how kindness is used in the New Testament. And so when you look up the word kindness in Greek, it's actually used in three different ways. And I've placed them up here for us to see. Uh, the first word is agathos, and it means to be good, upright, and honorable. This word then that is used uh, defines other people who offer kindly acts towards others. It's used actually more than 100 times in the New Testament. We see it when it's used to describe someone called Dorcas in Acts chapter 9. We read about that many months ago. And then it also describes Barnabas in Acts chapter 11. But that is not the word of kindness that is used here. Secondly, we have another Greek word that's used, and it's called kreistotes, and it means moral goodness or integrity. Now, this word is used to describe people who treat others with respect and sincerity. As a matter of fact, this word, kreistotes, is the word that is used in Galatians chapter 5 when Paul writes about the fruit of the Spirit. You remember from that passage that one of the fruit of the Spirit is kindness. That's the word that is used there. But what is the word that's used here 
in Acts chapter 28. Well, it's actually the word philanthropia. Now, I had to chastise um, Pastor Brian just a little bit last week because he used this word in his preaching, and uh, he said to me, don't worry about it, the people won't remember anyway. Well, here we are. The word is philanthropia, and it means love of mankind, benevolence, and generosity. And right away, you can see that this is where we get our word philanthropy. So this is the word to describe kindness here in Acts 28, verse 2. And it's only used one other time in the entire New Testament, and that's in Titus chapter 3, verse 4. So, from Luke's description, we can get a sense of how important kindness actually was to the people of Malta. They must have had a caring spirit for those who were distressed, and they acted out of hearts of generosity as they met many needs. Even though the text does not give us any explanation that these people received salvation in Christ, their temperament and their passion included helping those who were desperate. I mean, how much more desperate can you get than being shipwrecked, right? In fact, we're told that their hospitality actually started in a man called Publius. Let's look at this in verse 7. We read, Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island, named Publius. And he welcomed us and entertained us courteously for three days. Well, as we saw already, he not only took care of their needs for three days, but in verse 11, he took care of their needs for three months. And when the group finally decided that they, it was time to leave Malta, they provided everything that was needed for the group on their rest of their journey. Let's look at verse 10. That's where it tells us this. And they, that's speaking of Publius and the people of Malta, they also honored us with many marks of respect. And when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all we needed. Well, that is really quite a testimony for a group of strangers who took in these castaways. Now, I want to make an application here. I really pray that this concept of kindness is an appropriate description when people talk about Chino Valley Community Church. Uh, one of the ways that that is often exhibited is through um, what we call a benevolent fund. And as you remember, at the end of every communion Sunday, we have an opportunity to provide an offering that will benefit people in our congregation and in our community when they have significant needs. Now, as an elder, I know for a fact that some people, many actually, have benefited from this benevolent fund. And it is really linked to your kindness and your philanthropy and having, sometimes having their rent paid. I know that we have often purchased groceries for people. We've helped people when they've had health bills that they're unwilling, or I'm sorry, unable to pay. Not unwilling, sorry. <laughs> uh, you can cut that out when we do the taping there. As a church, as a church, we want to be known as people who practice philanthropy 
but we practice it in the name of Jesus. But going beyond the church, I think we want to be known as Christians who practice the fruit of the Spirit, as Paul noted in Galatians 5. Now, one of the hallmarks of a believer who is filled with the Holy Spirit, as it says, is the practice of kindness towards others. Now, according to the Greek word, this means that we should be people who act with integrity and moral goodness in all of our dealings with everyone we come in contact with. Our demeanor should include kindness towards others on a daily basis. We need to ask God to help us be aware, not, not only of the pressing physical needs of people, but also the kindly daily encounters that we have should be acts of kindness. It should be a critical reflection of the kindness that God shows upon us through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, before we leave this part of the story, we have to look that Paul and Luke had additional work to do. Remember, Luke was with Paul on this journey. The text tells us that the father of Publius was afflicted with fever and dysentery. We see this in verse 8. Let's look at it. And it came about that the father of Publius was lying in bed, afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. So what did Paul do? Well, in verse 9, or I'm sorry, at the end of verse 8, in normal fashion, it says Paul went in to see him. And after he prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. Now, we must notice that this must have caused quite a stir among the people of Malta because in verse 9, it says, after this happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. Now, I want to just pause here for a second. When it says they were getting cured, that word does not necessarily mean miraculous healing, although we're sure some of that happened. But remember who Luke was. He was a physician. And so part of the services that God allowed Luke to offer was the power of healing through his being a doctor. Well, it seems pretty clear that God blessed these people, the people of Malta, for the compassion and the mercy that they had showed to Paul, to Luke, and the others. I just believe that's how God works. So let's move into the second portion now. This is Paul's final journey to Rome, and we're going to focus on a concept here of encouragement. So after leaving Malta, Paul and the entire entourage, and remember that included his friends, there were some other prisoners, all of the Roman guards were there, they headed towards Italy. So uh, I've put a map up here for you. There it is. And we can now see the entire journey. When Paul, uh, he was tried in Caesarea, you can see there on the right, it's on the right there too, and they went up north uh, to uh, north of Cyprus and went across Pamphylia over to the city of Myra, then they went south of Crete. When they hit Crete, that's when they hit chapter 27, which I hope you remember was the shipwreck and the long storm that happened, more than two weeks while they were out on the sea. 
and then they landed in Malta. Now, from all of this detail, as a matter of fact, that's outlined for us here um, in Acts 28. That's pretty much, again, reminds us that Luke is the one who writes this letter because you remember from Luke's gospel, he gives great detail. I mean, minute detail for many things. He even tells us that there was a masthead of the ship and basically what its name was. So we learned that from here, from Malta, you can see that they sailed to the island of Sicily and landed in Syracuse. Now, Syracuse was a major city. It was uh, rich and powerful, but they only stayed there three days. Uh, it's imagined that Paul and his team were taking on provisions for the final leg of the journey. But Sicily was also a place of a very famous mathematician, his name was Archimedes. Some of you may remember that name from history class or math class. Frankly, I didn't remember it. I had to look it up. But not you. So, from Syracuse, they then sailed to the city of Regium. Now, Regium, as you can see here from the map, it's at the very tip of what we call the boot of Italy. They then sailed to the city called Puteole. And Puteole, which is the modern-day uh, city of Naples. So that ends Paul's perilous journey on the sea. And as we remember from last week, that was indeed a perilous journey. But we need to be reminded as well that it was uh, predicted that Paul and everyone on board that ship would land safely in Italy and that Paul would one day stand before Caesar. I want to remind you of that, so turn back a page, maybe, in your Bible to uh, Acts chapter 27, and let's look at verse 24. Actually, let's start in 23. Acts chapter 27, verse 23. Luke writes, For this very night... An angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me. This is Paul talking to the people. Saying, the angel said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. So this came about. It's exactly how the angel of God told the story to Paul. Now, let's learn a little bit about the city of Puteole, modern-day Naples. It sits about 130 miles away from Rome. So we learn from here that the remainder of this journey that Paul is going to take is going to be accomplished on foot. However, the text tells us that before they left the city, they met some other Christian brothers and lodged with them for seven days. Let's look at that. It's in verse 14. Luke writes, there we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And thus we came to Rome. Now, I ask myself, how did these Christian people know about the Apostle Paul? Well, for, to get that, we need to go back to Acts chapter 2. So let's go. Let's, let's go back. This is the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. We remember that 
the feast at Pentecost, many people from around the world came back to Jerusalem and worshiped there. And so in Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 8, and how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Now, pause button. This is when the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles and they were speaking. They were speaking in the language that each person there could understand. Well, where did these people come from? Verse 9 begins to tell us. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene. Oops, who next? And visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. So we see that during the time of Pentecost, there were people there who heard the gospel message, who saw the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the apostles and then on many others. They probably believed in Jesus Christ, and then after the Feast of Pentecost, they went back. They went back to their cities. They went back to their countries, and with them, they took the gospel message. So they must have known not only about the good news of Jesus Christ, but in the ensuing years, they must have learned about Paul's missionary journeys and the establishment of many churches in Asia Minor and in Europe. But others, other people in Rome had probably read Paul's letter addressed to the Roman Christians. He had written that approximately three years before this time, where we are right here in Acts 28. We realize that his deep teaching of spiritual truths found in the book of Romans stands. It stands as a testimony to the importance in the early development and the growing Christian church of the gospel message with which Paul explains so well there. So let's go back. As Paul and the group moved closer to Rome, they arrived at a place called the Market of Appius and the Three Inns. Let's look at that. We're now back in Acts 28, and we're in verse 15 on our own little travelogue here this morning. Verse 15, and the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the Market of Appius and Three Inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Now, when he says brethren, he's speaking about Christians there, and they had traveled uh, from Rome to this place called the Market of Appius and the Three Inns. It's about 43 miles one way from Rome to this site. And they, what they did, they came to greet the apostle Paul. Now, I want to linger for just a moment on the sweetness of Christian fellowship. When the Roman Christians learned that Paul was nearly to Rome, they walked this long distance to be the first to welcome him. Even though he was under arrest, God allowed this fellowship to encourage the apostle Paul. As, as a matter of fact, we see that at the end of verse 15, where it says, he, that's Paul, thanked God and took courage. 
Now, the Greek word for took courage is the word tharsos, and it means to gain courage or to gain confidence. In the Bible, it's used only here, only here to describe the positive impact that that visit must have had on the Apostle Paul. Some, tr some of your translations probably even use the word encouraged, and it describes how Paul felt about the Christians traveling this long distance to do what? Just to greet him and to bring him courage. Now, the New Testament, we find, is filled with the concept of encouragement among Christians. The Greek word here that is most often used, not at this spot, but in most of the writings throughout the New Testament, is the word parakaleo, and it means to strengthen or to comfort and to console. So Paul writes of this many times in his letters, and frankly, I, I wanted to show you some of those uh, this morning. Uh, the first one comes from Colossians 4.8. And Paul says, I have sent, and the person that he sent to the churches at Colossae uh, was Tychicus. And he says, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances, that's news of the day, but that he may encourage your hearts. And again, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul sends Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to do what? To strengthen and encourage you for the benefit of your faith. And also, in Titus chapter 2, Paul writes, so that the older women may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. You see, encouragement is something that Paul practiced often as he spread the gospel, and yet he encouraged other people to practice the concept of encouragement. I believe it's another hallmark of believers that expresses the love, compassion, and mercy that Jesus showed to those people who were in need. Not only are we called to be people uh, who are kind, but we're also called to be encouragers. So again, I ask myself the question, what does this look like? What does this look like in our lives today? So I dig a, did a little digging, and in the book of Hebrews, uh, we find that the writer said these things. He says, but encourage one another day after day, has a continuity to it, doesn't it? Lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And again, in Hebrews chapter 10, Verse 24, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So one way that the writer of Hebrews tells us that we can encourage other people is to help those people who may be led astray by sin. Now, from this, we can deduce that it is true that there are some people who are stronger in their faith than others. Now, this is not a boastful not a prideful thing, but perhaps through years of experience, it teaches us how to live faithfully and righteously. And with that knowledge and that experience, we can assist others in their Christian walk by inspiring and reassuring them of the many promises of God, by sharing our personal triumphs, and yeah, even some of our failures it can embolden other believers to walk by faith and not by sight. 
But the writer of Hebrews also says that we can encourage others to perform good deeds and express genuine love to the rest of the world around us. These attributes, I believe, are desperately needed today. And I believe that as Christians, by being encouragers of other Christians, that we can fulfill Christ's command to be salt and light in this world. But being an, an encourager of others takes intentionality. It's a favorite, favorite word of mine. I use it often. You see, because I know it's so easy to go about my everyday business not paying attention to the needs of other people, whether great or small. Sometimes I forget that I am to be an encourager. So I'm encouraging, I'm en exhorting each of us that we must take that step forward to encourage other, uh, other people. At times, yep, we need to be vulnerable. We need to share about some of our own struggles and failures. But like the example that we see in Acts 28, your actions may be just the encouragement someone needs to do great things for the kingdom of God. Well, finally, I know that's a word every one of you love to hear. Finally, we're going to lead with Paul's message to the Jews at Rome. And this is all about evangelism. When he finally arrives at Rome, here we are back in our travelogue, he's allowed to, it says from the word, stay by himself. It generally indicates that Paul lived in a rented house. However, we can't forget that he was still a prisoner. And let's look at Acts 28, uh, verse 16. It says, and when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. Well, uh, that reminds me that Paul was actually chained to this soldier. Usually he was chained at the wrist, and the Roman soldier used to change um, their uh, session with Paul about every four hours. So think about the conversations that these soldiers heard while they were chained at the wrist to the Apostle Paul day after day after day. Well, we actually know that that occurred and that it had a positive impact from the book of Philippians. In the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 12, Paul writes that the gospel was, and here's a direct quote, the gospel was well known throughout the whole Praetorian guard. How did that happen? Chained at the wrist, listening to Paul, watching as he shared the gospel with others. Uh, I think that's truly a captive audience, don't you? <laughs> really. But as we see what happens to Paul while he's in Rome, he follows a similar pattern that he always has, even throughout every missionary journey. He first went to the Jews and shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. This was part of the fulfillment of Jesus' calling for Paul that was written in Acts chapter 9. Let's remind ourselves of that quickly. Just, we're moving fast here. Acts chapter 9. Uh, this was uh, Paul's conversion experience. And looking at verse 15. Now this is uh, God speaking to Ananias 
about what is going to happen to Paul. This is Acts chapter 9, verse 15. But the Lord said to him, now this is Ananias that the Lord is speaking to, go, go to where Paul is, for he, that's Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. You see, first Paul wanted to share with the Jewish people. That was his calling. So he did that. He called them. We're back in Acts 28 now. He called them together. And the first thing that he wanted to do was to proclaim his innocence. Let me read that in Acts 7, uh, 9. I'm sorry, let's go back. 28, 17. And it happened that after three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they had come together, he began saying to them, Brethren, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, that's the Romans had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. So, I find it somewhat ironic that Paul states that he had nothing to do with dissing his nation or his people. But remember, that comes after the accusations that were made against him. And who made those accusations against the Apostle Paul? <laughs> it was the Jewish leaders. So Paul is practicing a level of humility that really I find astounding. It was imperative for Paul that he lived the message he wrote to the Roman Christians in Romans 12. And I've put that one up here. Paul writes to the Romans, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So Paul practiced great humility, even in the face of tremendous accusation. But secondly, Paul preached the kingdom of God to these men. The meeting actually took place at their request. Uh, verse 21, it says, And they said to him, We have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For concerning this sect, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. What did, do? What did Paul do? Well, verse 23 tells us, And when they had set a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. Lots of people were there. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus. How did he do that? From both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. I want you to remember that this is not unusual. This is what Paul would do. He would teach them from exactly what they knew. And what did they know best? Moses and the prophets. But that was a similar teaching that Jesus used. Remember the road to Emmaus? 
Jesus, the resurrected Lord, is walking along the road and he comes across two of the disciples. They don't recognize who he is. And Jesus began teaching them about the resurrected Lord. And it tells us, here, we have Luke 24 where this happens. It says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So Paul's message to these Jewish leaders was just what Jesus had done. And it elicited what we would call a pretty typical response. We see from verse 24, some were persuaded, but others would not believe. So what did Paul do? Well, he challenged them by a quote from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. You, you can see it there. Maybe in your Bible, uh, it's indented in some particular way. This is a quote from the book of Isaiah. But I want you to remember as well that this is the exact same quote that Jesus used when he taught the parable of the sower found in Matthew 13 and also in the book of Mark. So what does he do? Well, Paul proclaims the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then he ends this way in verse 28. This salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, they're the ones who are going to listen. Well, for most of the leaders, these Jewish leaders, that was the last straw. That was it. They argued among themselves and probably stormed out of the house. So from this, it tells me that there are probably two aspects of the gospel message. To those that believe, it's a message of life and hope. But to those who reject the gospel, it's a message of condemnation. Paul wrote about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Here it is. Paul says that for we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. So I just want to remind you, today you've heard the gospel. It's the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. He is the one who died to pay the penalty for your sins. But we also know that he rose in triumph over sin so that you and I might have eternal life if we believe on him. Now, if you have not yet made that decision to accept Jesus as your Savior, don't respond like some of these Jewish leaders did and reject that message. Take the step today. Ask Jesus to become your Savior. I can promise you, he will not disappoint. Well, finally, in this epilogue, Luke provides us with a, with a brief ending. He tells us that the Apostle Paul spent two more years in custody in Rome, but his preaching and his teaching was not hindered. He boldly proclaimed Jesus as Lord to all who would listen. So let's understand it. The book of Acts is not completed yet. It doesn't end with this final chapter. Now, we know from tradition that Paul was executed by Nero approximately six years after this last chapter. 
So you might be a little bit disappointed. Why doesn't Luke tell us? I mean, after all, he gave us all of the details of these journeys. Well, this is where we have to remember that the book of Acts wasn't written by Paul or about Paul. Although we understand, as I said before, that he's the central character, the story is actually about Jesus. It's about the establishment of his church. And so the story of Acts continues today, even right now, as the church fulfills its mission to bring the gospel to every nation, tribe, and people. The final chapter won't be completed until Jesus comes again. I'm looking forward to that day. I hope you are too. Let's pray. Father God, it's been an exciting journey as we have followed the establishment of your church. We've seen it grow from humble beginnings at the day of Pentecost and now to the fulfillment of the presence even of the Apostle Paul in Rome. And yet we realize that it's not about this great travelogue, it's about Jesus. And I ask God that your Holy Spirit right now is speaking to hearts, people who are here right now listening to me or people who are on the internet listening to this message. I pray that your Spirit would cause us to be mindful of how we are to be people who are kind and people who are encouragers, but mostly people who take the gospel message, the message of evangelism, the message of the Apostle Paul through Jesus Christ to the world that so desperately needs you. We ask God that you would stir in our hearts the passion for sharing Jesus with others in ways that would bring glory and honor to his name. For it is in his name that we pray these things. Amen.